Hey everybody, this is Phil Wiedenheft. I am here with a brand new podcast. It's only uh, my partner and I's fourth attempt at, at doing one, but we're, we think we're going to get it right this time. Yeah. Uh, the, na- the name of the podcast is How's That Day? So I am here to start with asking my co-host, Tom Bond, how's that day? It's pretty good. Uh, I'm in LA and it's actually raining a lot, which is kind of cool. It's been a little rainy the past two weeks, which I love. Very nice. Uh, well, it's the first episode, so let's introduce ourselves briefly. Uh, give yourself maybe a quick bio, a quick summary. Yeah, I, guess, I guess if you want to do that, we can do that. Let's see. My name's Tom. I live in Los Angeles. I'm originally from the suburbs of Boston, Massachusetts. I work for a sound mixing company out here in L.A. I write, I read and watch a lot of movies, and currently I'm really upset because even though I can tell that the hot tub in my building is working fine. They have yellow tape around it, even though the jets are going off, but no one's allowed in there, and I'm really bummed out. Well, my name's Phil, and I'm the exact same person down to every single detail that Tom just said. Pretty much. Um, I have the exact same hot tub problems that you are having right now. Are you serious? So, no, no. no that would be <laughs> awesome. That would actually make fact, me feel better because I'm selfish. Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, I, less than an hour ago, was in a hot tub. I came straight here from the gym. Ah, fuck so you, man. I, so I was in a hot tub today, so I'm sorry if that makes you jealous. Well, not only that you got to use the hot tub, but that you went to the gym and I didn't. Phil, uh, we were both heavy people when we met each other, and Phil is now very svelte and fit-looking, and I'm still fat, so. But you're going to get there. And no, I'm not, I mean, but I did good, use the gym last night, so that's a, that's something. Yeah, I I, don't, I think you leave a, lead a generally healthy lifestyle from the time I spend with you and see your diet and your, you know, I know you exercise you know, more than plenty of people. I just, I just do everything bad when people go to bed and I'm up till 4 a.m. Yeah, I've been, I'm, I'm better about sleeping now. All right, my name is Phil Wiedenhaupt. Um, I, like Tom, uh, grew up in the suburbs, but of Dayton, Ohio, as opposed to Boston. Uh, we met in film school in New York. Uh, we are both film nerds, uh, TV lovers, book lovers. Um, and on this podcast, we're both going to be talking about kind of whatever you know, is going on that week and whatever we feel like discussing because we've been having this ongoing conversation in our lives for the last decade or so, and uh, we just wanted to lay it down on uh, vinyl, as they say. Mm, I don't say that. Uh, people say I'm pretty sure there's people that say that. That's the first difference between you and me. I don't say that, and you do. Yeah, it's, it's hot. It's, it's, it's hot. It's, uh, it's hot slang. Well, we did record nine episodes of a podcast last year. That was going to be a recap of the show Mad Men. But to be perfectly honest, we stopped after the uh, creepy allegations against Matthew Weiner. So if people start listening to this podcast and they want us to continue and think they'd be interested in that, we will totally put our morals aside and pick that podcast up again because I was really enjoying it. But for now, we're going to do this, and this is cool. Yeah, yeah. The allegations, it wasn't so much that he had like assaulted anybody. It was just that he had been... A, an emotional terrorist is, I think, the quote. And, you know, it kind of just felt a little strange to us to kind of week in and week out be praising this guy, especially about feminism, because so much of Mad Men's about that. So we just kind of pumped the brakes on that one and decided uh, we'd kind of uh, go to something a bit more broad, which I'm excited about anyway, because I feel like Mad Men's great. We love Mad Men. I'm sure it'll come up on this podcast plenty of times. But, you know, we were pretty limited by what we could discuss in that show. We had to talk about, you know, so much stuff involving the episode. This is going to allow us to talk about all kinds of things. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, if we just kind of 
keep it loose and open, I feel like Mad Men will sneak in because I feel like you rewatch it like what once every two months. No, not anymore. Um, I feel like now uh, I watched it with my fiance. Uh, we made our way through the show, and uh, now that we've wrapped it up, I feel like that was a good like breaking point for me. And now I can take a long break from it and work on other shows. But I did rewatch the show many times over the last decade. Got to work on those other shows, man. Got to put in the work. Yeah, although I say that, and we're currently rewatching The West Wing right now. So, which you've seen the at least the first four seasons. How many times have you seen those? At least four times. <laughs> and that doesn't include when you just put on a random episode after you've had a bad day. Yeah, yeah, that's the show is uh, chicken soup for me. That's you know that. Uh, I it's stuff like I know people kind of throw on the office or parks and rec and I do that too but I I do 30 rock yeah 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 like those types of like short 20 minute comedies are usually people's breaks but I like a good uh you know quick-witted dialogue fast talking walk and talks Aaron Sorkin thing that makes me feel good can you tell the people your quote about Mad Men and the West Wing that I just love so much yes I've always said Mad Men made me want to be a better writer and the West Wing makes me want to be a better man Oh, I love it. It's so it's so Phil. You guys will get to know. You'll you'll know how earnest that quote is. The show is so earnest. It's great. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's it's annoying. It's like cloying and obnoxious, and you roll your eyes at the these like sin, such sincerity. But uh, you know, I, I still love it. I still eat it up. It's great. It makes you feel better, especially in light. Yeah, of it's what's part of its charm. Yeah, especially in light of Kurt, what's going on currently in the world. It's a nice. Uh, it's a nice safe haven. Yeah, so we're going to try to put these episodes out pretty much immediately, but maybe just to timestamp it. We're in the middle, or towards the end of March 2018 right now. Spring officially just hit, and we aren't here to talk about Mad Men in the West Wing this week. We're trying to do, I guess, a, a film recap, 2017, maybe talk about the Oscars, our own favorites. Well, you know, we're a few weeks removed from the Academy Awards. You know, those aired, and so we've had a few weeks to kind of digest that those wins. And I guess I, you know, now that you've had some remove, I guess I wonder what your feelings overall about the year 2017 were. Well, f- first thing I'll say about the Oscars, uh, I obviously had my own choices that I wished would win. It happened in a couple instances, didn't happen in others, but... I think I mentioned this to you previously. I cannot think of another year where my three favorite films of the year, you know, I'm a big list guy, top 10 lists and all that. My one, two, and three of 2017 were all nominated for Best Picture. I don't think that's ever happened before. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's like 2007 is a pretty great year. We were, I'm sure that will come up multiple times, but because I had like No Country, There Will Be Blood, Michael Clayton, uh, Jesse James. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just talking about like Academy Award nominated stuff. But what was nominated for Best Picture that year? We had No Country One, Blood, Atonement, Juno. It was Juno and Michael Clayton. Juno and Michael Clayton. Yeah, that was like one of the last years when they just had five. Yeah, it was the 2009 is the first year they switched over because it was the year after The Dark Knight. Yeah, which should have been nominated. Man, Juno, Best Picture nominee, huh? Yeah, it was a different time. That was when like every <laughs> that wouldn't fly this year. Yeah, Fox Searchlight had that, like, every year they kind of released that movie, you know, like the Little Miss Sunshine of that year, or the Juno of that year, the Garden State of that year. Garden State didn't get nominated for any Oscars, did it? No, but it had oh, a big following. Gosh. I know, I know, I'm just, that would have been very upsetting. Uh, not, I don't not a fan of that movie. You're not? 
No, do not like that movie. I have a soft spot for that movie. I mean, I, I don't. Didn't, th- I didn't see it when it came out, which I would have been sixteen, seventeen, something like that. Right? It was like two thousand two, two thousand three. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't see it until I was like twenty one or twenty two, and by then I was ugh, no thanks. Uh, yeah. See, I was. I was the ripe, you know, I was 18 when that movie came out. I saw it in theaters and, uh, you know, I was just getting into like that indie rock, you know, so the soundtrack was right up my alley. I was just, you know, I was your everyday corny white boy living in suburban America who like felt like that movie spoke to him. I, and, I, you know, I feel like I'm happy with that movie staying in the past. Like, I don't want to rewatch it because I'm sure I, I, I'm sure it would lower in my estimation in some ways but like in my memories i was like oh yeah that meant a lot to a silly emotional teenage version of myself whereas now probably wouldn't resonate as much yeah i was listening to basically outcast and fish on a loop which are probably the two bands that are furthest removed from the garden state aesthetic so i guess that movie is is just it's just not for me well you know that's okay so anyway back to the yeah back to the oscars um we I think we we both like The Shape of Water winning Best Picture, but we didn't love it. It wasn't we were Get Out people. I like the idea of Shape of Water winning more than I like the film itself as a Best Picture winner. I think it's great that Del Toro got recognized. He's someone I've always admired. Um, I'm a huge huge horror fan. I like Del Toro, especially some of his earlier movies like Pan's La- or Pan's Labyrinth. I do like, but Devil's Backbone is by far my favorite. I think that movie is a stone cold masterpiece. I think it's amazing. So I've always loved him. Um, I'm really glad he won director. It's cool to see a horror movie nerd up there get the ultimate prize. Um, but yeah, Get Out for sure is the movie of 2017. Even if it's not your favorite, it's I think it's the one that will be discussed, will be remembered, will kind of define the year. If you, like, look to each year to have a movie that kind of def- speaks for what was going on in the country at the time, Get Out, I think, is the the obvious choice there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to age wonderfully. It's our, It's got such uh, rewatchability. And yeah, it's, I've seen it know, four times already, man. I love it. It's so good. Yeah, and it um, that's going to stand as it, – it does stand as one of the peak – theater going experiences for me like seeing it with that opening weekend crowd was incredible and you could feel like every beat of the movie like the way the ups and downs the like the way he was you know playing you like a puppeteer a great film like a great filmmaker does you know they're kind of like you're you're getting scared and then you're laughing and then you're upset and you don't know and then you know then you're kind of taking a breath and then you're holding your breath again and it's just it's a roller coaster ride and that like uh palpable feeling in the air of seeing it opening weekend you could just tell it was a special movie and it's so crowd-pleasing as a horror film. It, it totally works for people who aren't normally into horror movies. You know, it's not super grotesque. It's disturbing, but more in a Twilight Zone mental kind of way that I think is just really creative and fun. And it has great characters, and it's really, really funny. It's such a funny movie, especially after you've seen it the first time and you just go back for the, the joy of the rewatch and you kind of know where everything's heading it's really, really, it's just a perfect movie. I think uh, that's by far my favorite win of the Oscars was Jordan Peele getting Best Screenplay. That was the one thing I said, you know, Get Out is a dark horse for picture. It's not going to win Best Actor or Director, but I was just hoping it won script, and it did, and that, that made me very happy. Well, I feel like 
I was also rooting for Get Out to win, and that was kind of the same. Like I was rooting for Moonlight over La La Land last year, and I was happy when that panned out. And I feel like the same way that I think that losing helped La La Land kind of not become the overhyped, you know, white movie about jazz that beat Moonlight. It is now the underrated movie that got kind of screwed at the Oscars, and I think that helps its legacy in the in the way people watch it in long term. And uh, you know, I'm I think. Shape of Water is probably somewhere in between. It's um, I, I don't like. I'm a fan of the movie. It's in my top twenty. We'll we'll get to that later. But it, it's in there, and I and I rewatched it a week or two ago, and it's a very strange movie. And I do kind of feel bad that it's been so quickly dismissed by a lot of people as the fish sex movie. That's what a lot of people focus on. Yeah. And um, and I think people are like, oh, that's a weird choice. And I do kind of see how the movie is about, you know, the toxic masculinity of white men and the underdogs and like you know a, a black woman a, a handicap slash mute woman uh you know a gay man it's about these people like rising up against these like these evil american forces and i feel like that's kind of why a lot of voters felt like they were still giving a enlightened or a progressive vote as opposed to, you know get out was obviously the like the quote-unquote woke choice but i feel like a lot of people felt like the shape of water was also touching on those political things in a way that they felt like they were safe voting for that as well. Yeah, for sure. I think three billboards, not winning, um, maybe not as much, but saves it in the same way. La La Land was kind of saved by not winning best picture. You know, I think it'll three billboards was already getting so much internet backlash for its depiction of Sam Rockwell's character and his arc, especially at the end of the movie, are we supposed to forgive him or find him sympathetic I know there was a lot of back talk about that. And that's another movie that's really flawed. I have my own issues with it. I, I didn't dislike it nearly as much as a lot of people did, at least online. I thought for sure for a long time it was going to win up until about maybe two weeks before the Oscars when it really seemed like Shape of Water was... I mean, it was a true toss-up, I feel. Um, so I've, I think Three Billboards and La La Land saved their reputation a little bit which is silly because it's the fucking oscars and ultimately who cares who wins but get out i think win or lose it, it, it was just going to improve and improve and over time i think it even could have been one of those winners that which is rare that people look back on and say damn that was a that was an awesome choice you know but now that it even didn't who cares it's just it's going to go down on the exorcist silence of the lambs rosemary's baby level of all-time great horror films yeah, so let me ask you overall, what were your like two or three favorite wins of the of the year in the uh, Oscar ceremony? For sure, get out for screenplay. Um, Mark Bridges for Phantom Thread for his costume design. Uh, if there was any movie that could fight Get Out for my favorite of the year, I know I'm spoiling what we're going to talk about later, but it's definitely Phantom Thread. So I'm glad that got some recognition. Um, man, I don't know. Just Frances McDormand was kind of obvious, and you know, it gets a little boring when you know someone's going to win and they win. But she's so great, and her speech was so wonderful that her moment uh, made her win worth it, even though personally I maybe would have wanted to see Saoirse Ronan win or even Sally Hawkins, but that was cool. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what, what, do you, what would you say? Well, I would add Roger Deakins finally winning. Oh, yes, of course. Great call. Yeah, for sure. 
And I completely agree with you. Get Out winning Best Screenplay. Like, I mean, I, we were rooting for Best Picture, but the Screenplay is where they kind of reward the, the indie films or, like, yeah. the more auteur-driven stuff. Like, that's, like, Quentin Tarantino has two writing Academy Awards, not anything for directing. And this year's Screenplay group was very tough. I mean, it was a very competitive field. You had Three Billboards, which was an Oscar favorite. You had Lady Bird, which is maybe the, I mean... Definitely, in my opinion, the funniest script of the year. Um, was No, The Post wasn't nominated. I'm trying to remember what else was in there for original screenplay. I can't remember now. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, oh, uh, The Big Sick was in there, which was never going to win, but, you know, a strong writing sample anyway. Yeah, and then you had Call Me By Your Name winning Best Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, which is cool for James Ivory. Good for him. I'm not... Yeah, good. I'm not very honestly. I'm not well versed in his movies. That's kind of a blind spot for me. I know it. I know he has his fans. The Merchant Ivory stuff from back in the day. Yeah, they're very. Um, I think they appear very classical and stuffy. But if you can kind of like settle into those worlds and not get like, I think people see those period dramas and get intimidated by them or kind of instantly associate them with boredom. Um, and I think if you can kind of just get in there and get your head around the world, they're, they're pretty interesting. The, yeah. the ones I've seen. I do uh, have I, a buddy of mine gave me his fancy Cohen media group, Blu-ray of Howard's end. So I do have that sitting on my shelf waiting to be watched. So I should get to that. Yeah. And a room with a view is great as well. Yeah. Um, do you have any, uh, disappointments like or anything you're just really upset that one or anything really nagging not, at you not disappointed because i like alice and janney i liked i tanya well enough she was very funny but man that laurie metcalf come on laurie metcalf should have won that she was maybe the best performance in my opinion of the entire year from any category i thought she was so great she was so funny smart annoying Sympathetic. It was just such a great character. I've always, maybe I'm a little biased. I've always loved Lori Metcalf. She's been one of my favorite actresses. She, she was great on Roseanne. She's the killer in Scream too. I loved her. But yeah. um, in terms of snubs, I think Vicky Creeps from Phantom Thread should have been nominated. That was one of the most annoying things, especially because Phantom Thread did so well, so surprisingly well with the nominations. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't agree. think anyone was expecting. Uh, PTA to get a director nom. It's crazy that she didn't... I mean, she wasn't expected to get nominated, but the fact that she didn't get nominated and PTA didn't even get a screenplay nomination, but it did so well everywhere else is kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, Alice and Janney winning over Leslie Manville and Laurie Metcalf to me was maybe not... Again, not upsetting. It's the Oscars, but... I was also rooting for sound mixing uh, for Blade Runner 2049, because I think that technically is the best movie of the year. I think it should have won pretty much every technical award. Especially over something like Dunkirk, which is a, is a good movie. But the sound mix is just so loud. It's just really, really loud. And it seems like a lot of those technical awards, when you win best editing, it's most editing. Best sound, it's most sound. All that stuff, you know. Especially when you compare it to something as intricate as like Baby Driver. Yeah. You know, and something that's very creative and different. Whereas, like, you know, Dunkirk, I think it was an amazing theatrical going experience, especially because I saw it, you know, in the IMAX and I felt my body like vibrating. Yeah. But that's just, Same. that's loud. That's loudness and that's um, gunfire. And, you know, like, it's appropriate, but it's not necessarily as innovative or as fun or as, you know, unique as something like a baby driver. Yeah. 
so what about you? Any disappointments? Um, I agree with you about Alice and Janney. We spoke earlier about my love of the West Wing, so I, I love me some Alice and Janney. Um, Primary Colors is also one of my favorite movies. And yeah, she, it's a good one. She has a very small but wonderful role in that. I've always loved Alice and Janney. Um, but like you, Laurie Metcalf is who I would have you know gone with. I think she's amazing. Um, and we'll discuss Phantom Thread a little bit more later. But um, I also really love Leslie Manville and what she was doing. So I wouldn't have been disappointed if she would have like kind of swooped in there. But, you know, it's okay. I understand. It's um, crazy. This is the first time ever that all four actors kind of swept their way to the Oscars. Because yeah. usually supporting, at least, there's a supporting actor nom- winner that's kind of a big surprise. I feel like it happens as often as it doesn't with the Oscars. But this was the most, I mean, it was it was chalk all the way through. Rockwell, Oldman, Janney, and McDormand. I mean, I guess Rockwell's not really a disappointment, but, ugh, you know, he's great in that movie, but come on. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya, Daniel Day-Lewis, anybody? I would, yeah, I would say that this was the year that I love all the actors that won, and I happen to not necessarily be a huge fan of the movies that they were in. Except I would say I, Tanya, actually kind of like the most uh, out of those varied wins. But, like, Dark Ta- Darkest Hour... Like, did nothing for me. And Three Billboards Like You, I find complicated. And uh, some scenes, I think, really work. And others, I think, fall completely flat. Though, my, uh, I agree with you about Three Billboards, the film. But I have zero issue with Rockwell winning for his... No, no. With what he's supposed to do, he is so, so good in that movie. Yeah, he's good. And I don't even care if I thought he was bad in the movie. Like, Frances McDormand, I actually probably have the opinion that I think she's kind of got the one note to play and she does and she's got a couple smaller quieter moments that i think she's very good in but i wish that there was more to that character a little bit more for her to do besides be angry and steaming the whole movie and you know it's not to knock the performance at all i think she did great with what she was given but i would have liked to her for her to have been given more yeah maybe show a little more um sadness and reflection that her daughter was raped and murdered i mean i know she's channeling it into into action you know i get that but yeah, you're right. We don't really see that much of another. The closest we get are the occasional moments with Woody Harrelson, which are some of the best parts of the movie. Yeah. And it's, you know, not to get too much into it, because I don't want to, like, tear the movie down, but it is a strange kind of reflection of uh, a current-day America, because it doesn't feel like it takes place in a real world. Because if it is, you know, it's taking place, like, uh, right across the state from where, you know, there's police shootings and cell phone videos and social media like activism and stuff and you feel like well you know this woman posting three billboards out in the middle of nowhere asking questions doesn't seem like how you would actually realistically keep the conversation going anymore so it's kind of it's a strange movie a strange world but there are i think good performances in it and some very well written scenes and other scenes that just don't make any sense at all although wasn't there a uh, news story like the week before the oscars that um was it someone hoisted up some billboards outside somewhere in dc was it marco Ru- yeah marco rubio it was like a it was a gun thing it was like right, why right. that's what it was it was asking the like why no gun control yeah. something like that which i'm sure yeah. the movie loved i mean they're like that's such good free publicity for them that was fantastic if you're a marketer for three billboards yeah so all right moving beyond the oscar talk i want to talk about the year overall so like i have not heard even though it is March, I have not heard your top 10 or 20 for the year. 
So I'm ready to hear it. I, I, you can give me like a quick rundown and then we can kind of dive into it. And But I want to hear yours. I'll give you mine. And I just want to like hear where you landed on the year. And I'm sure we'll have some overlap. So, okay. I saw a lot of movies last year. The most I've seen in a while. Probably since we were living in New York, which for me was 2012 was my last year there. Uh, excuse me, I just burped. So I wrote down... As you know, I get very anal about these lists, and so I went. I log every movie that I see on Letterboxd, and I keep my own list on my on my notes in my phone. And basically, I just went through all of them and eliminated the ones that I just didn't like at all or liked enough, but not enough to even consider on a list. And I ended up with sixty movies. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna rank them sixty to one, which is meaningless. You know, who knows my forty eight versus my fifty four? There's no difference there. So, I'll tell you just a couple things before I get to uh, my top twenty. I ended up having Shape of Water at thirty one, so it didn't make the top twenty. I did have it in terms of Best Picture winner nominees. I had it ahead of Three Billboards, uh, The Post, and. Um, darkest hour aren't even on the list it was a good nomination group um i also had it just ahead of call me by your name which maybe i'm regretting looking at it right now i don't know but i had it behind films like the bad batch valerian and the city of a thousand planets and super dark times so there you go what's your list buddy my top 20 right yeah, give it to me. Go right. 20 to 1. All right. Number 20, I have the movie Thelma. Did you ever see that or hear of that one? I, I know of it. I never got to see it. Okay. It's, I think it's on video on demand now, and I would have planned to watch it. In the yeah, movie. very. it's right on my alley in terms of its aesthetic. It's you know kind, kind of a coming-of-age quasi-horror movie, um, indie film, foreign film sensibility. I, I really enjoyed it. Number 19, you're going to laugh at me probably for these next two choices. Number 19 is Happy Death Day. Which okay. I think it's one of the most pure. It's not great as a film, <laughs> but I'm going. I'm going off of enjoyment as much as anything in this top twenty. I'm trying not to be so hoity-toity about my list. You know, I could put Dunkirk there instead, but I'm not. I enjoyed Happy Death Day more. It's, it, it's really, really fun. It holds up. I've watched it a second time. Just a really pleasing movie to watch. I think it's very. It's just very creative and fun. I, I had a good time with it. I will grant that Blumhouse has been very good about letting their directors kind of be formally in, uh, inventive with their stuff and things like that. And I think they've been one of the obviously one of the great success stories of the last five or ten years with yeah. their brand. One thing you absolutely cannot say about Happy Death Day is that it's bland. You can say it's dumb, whatever. The characters are stupid. I I won't argue that, but to call that movie bland, I I think you're objectively wrong. All right, number eighteen was Split a movie from January, which has just held high in my estimation. I haven't seen it since, so it's been over a year at this point, but I still really liked it. Meh. Number 17, we're really going to disagree here, was Personal Shopper, the Olivier okay. Assayas movie with Kristen oh. Stewart. Okay. Number 16, Brawl in Cell Block 99. Number 15, this movie, I can't believe it had this much staying power for me, but was Wind River. Really enjoyed that movie. Thought it was just a classic throwback crime. Really elegantly done. Yeah, it's a good movie to watch with your dad. That's a great dad movie, yeah. If my dad would ever see movies. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Number 14, this animated film I saw at the very end of the year called Bird Boy, The Forgotten Children. Did not see that one. 
Yeah, I think I think it originally I think it's several years old and finally got a theatrical release. Actually, right down the street from me, went and saw it and was kind of blown over by it. Number thirteen is another animated film, The Breadwinner, which was a huge surprise. I thought it would be kind of stale, and was very moved by that. On Netflix now. Highly recommend anyone watches it if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'm glad Coco won, as you'll see. But The Breadwinner, if that had won Best Oscar, totally cool with that too. Number 12, Spider-Man Homecoming. I don't know the last time I've had, or maybe never, I don't think I've ever had a Marvel movie this high on my list. Uh, Black Panther may be just as high when the year ends, but Spider-Man, we've talked about it, Phil. It's a John Hughes movie. As a Marvel film, it's everything I wanted Spider-Man to be. I agree, man. I am. A, it's not on my list. It probably should be. I actually, it's one of those titles that, like, like you, I should take enjoyment into consideration. And that was, I had a big, bright smile on my face the entire time. Well, speaking of taking enjoyment into consideration, this is the one you've been waiting for. It's not Baywatch, but it's number eleven, Triple X: Return of Xander Cage, baby. Okay. I haven't seen it, so I can't judge too much. And it's just, I'm sure it's self-aware and it's goofy. And I'm, I'm sure like it, it has a good sense of humor about itself. And that's why it's enjoyable. I'm sure of all those things. But I just, I can't get into Vin Diesel, man. I, I, you can watch it and you will still judge me just as harshly. I have no doubt. Okay. Well, I, wa- I, did, I did watch Baywatch and that was awful. I, I can't fight. Baywatch was, you know, obviously ended up not making my top 20. It's somewhere on the 60, though. <laughs> okay. Triple uh, X would have made the top 10 if it wasn't for the last movie I wanted to watch on for my list, which was Okja, my number 10 spot. Oh, very Really, nice. really loved Okja. I thought it was a fantastic film. Number nine, A Ghost Story, which uh, I told you after I saw it, I had the most extreme change in reaction, the pie-eating scene I almost walked out of the theater I didn't. I'm glad I didn't because an hour later I was blown away and didn't know what to think. It was one of those movies where I sat in my seat as the credits rolled and was just kind of dumbstruck for a little while. Really blew me away. Number eight was another late watch, um, Brigsby Bear. I really, really loved Brigsby Bear. Yeah, Num- number- I, that, was a ni- that was a nice surprise. Yeah. Numbers, I mean, did, do you want me to just keep rolling through them or should I? Yeah, yeah, keep rolling, okay. keep rolling. I'm, I'm sure, I feel like we're going to start overlapping some. So Yeah, we are. Definitely fun. towards the top we are. Number seven, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, it's everything I want out of Lanthimos. The lobster was solid, but not really my speed. It felt more like a Wes Anderson movie. This is, uh, this is Lanthimos at his best, in my opinion. Number six, Blade, Blade Runner, Blade Runner, Blade Runner, 2049. We talked about it a little bit. Masterpiece. Um, the story's not perfect, but I think it's a totally worthy successor to Blade Runner. I really loved Blade Runner 2049. Number five, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Number four, Coco. Number three, Lady Bird. And then I keep going back and forth, but right now I'm going to say number two, Phantom Thread. And number one, Get Out. All right, very nice. Yeah, we're, we are going to overlap some, especially there towards the top. And um, I'll, So I'll run through mine really quick, and then we'll kind of talk about the year. Um, my number 20 is the Lego Batman movie, um, which I really wish would have been nominated. It's way more inventive and over the boss, yeah, baby. over the boss baby or Ferdinand. <laughs> that's one of my bigger disappointments. Um, I do, uh, Coco is not on my list, but, uh, Coco was a great viewing experience. I went with my daughter and my fiance and they both were weeping through the entire second half of the movie. And basically every time the guitar was pulled out, I could hear them kind of like prepping themselves to cry harder. So it, 
Wait, you have Lego Batman movie on the list? And not yeah, man, I love Lego Batman. Ba- Lego Batman movie, really quickly, is more of a pure Batman movie than we've actually had in a live action version. Because I was sitting there in the theater laughing and enjoying the self-referential jokes, but I was also, at some point it clicked to me, I was like, man, this is Batman and Robin and Batgirl versus the entire rogues gallery of Bat villains. And, you know, and it's still like, it's making fun of... The original 60s stuff, you know, all the eras, uh, the the super serious 80s stuff, the Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan era stuff. And it's having fun. And I love the character so much that I really enjoyed its sense of humor, its visual style, and how much I enjoyed it as an actual Batman story or a Batman adventure like that I felt like I hadn't seen uh, in a theater, actually. um, So it really stood out to me for that reason. Cool. Um, the, number 19, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I'm not quite as high on you as this one, uh, largely because I've struggled um, with the thematic elements of the movie. I'm still just I'm still just wrestling with what I think it all means. And because for me, there's so little emotion and human characteristics that are kind of in there. So uh, for me, I start looking for ideas and symbolisms and metaphors and all that. And right now, it's kind of been an enigma and I need to rewatch it. And so while I, I did love the style of it and I loved the visual sense, uh, of the low angles of the, with the wide, uh, angle lenses and, you know, these distorted proportions and uncomfortable tensions, uh, you know, that he's known for, I loved all that, but I still kind of am wrestling with it a bit. Um, number 18, the big sick, um, just a, you know, feel good romantic comedy. They don't make enough of those anymore. Yeah, that was that almost made my twenty. That was just outside. Yeah, number seventeen, Baby Driver. Um, another one that I loved initially, but like when you kind of start thinking about it, especially the third act, I think it kind of falls apart a lot. And I think some of the characters, um, especially the female lead, is a big letdown. Um, I wish there was more for her to do besides kind of wait around for Baby to tell her he needs her to drive across country with him. And can we talk really quickly? One of the most annoying. It's a. It's another reason why. Baby Driver and The Shape of Water aren't in my top 20. I judge these movies higher than something silly like Triple X or Baywatch. Why does Kevin Spacey give his life to Baby? Because he, he was in love once is the only reason we get. It's awful. Yeah, that's a, that's. I really do think the movie falls apart. But I think as a stylistic exercise and as a pure cinema-going experience, it's a lot of fun. But I also... It is. It's a lot of fun. And I would compare it in some ways. Uh, This is a movie... I made this list a few weeks ago, and I I don't know if I made the list today if it would be in the top 20, but it's on the one I made, so I'm going to you know stick to it for now. So moving on from Baby Driver, uh, my number 16 is Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories. Um, I haven't seen that. I think that's the first one on your list I haven't seen. Yeah, it's... um, I have I've been hot and cold on Noah Baumbach overall, like generally, um, and I think the last few years he's had some like Francis Ha, which I think are masterpieces, and others like um, the Ben Stiller Noah. Uh, while we're young, while we're young, yeah, I was blanking on the title, but that one I really struggled with, and Mistress America I enjoyed, but I thought was kind of um, light and uh, forgettable. Um, I'm sure I, I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember the movie very well. So that's just all I can say about that one. But Meyerowitz for me is the most complete and it feels in many ways like a spiritual sequel to the squid and the whale and has had the best balance of that film's ice cold demeanor, but it kind of injects a little bit more of the warmth of his age. And I think he's gotten a little bit softer as he's gotten older. So I enjoyed seeing that and I really enjoyed 
um, such an open-hearted performance from Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller's kind of doing the Ben Stiller thing, but I, it was fine for me. It worked here. And, uh, you know, there's just some sharp dialogue and some really good character moments. So I would, I recommend that movie, um, even though it is kind of familiar at this point. Yeah, I'm with, I love Francis Ha. I love Mistress America, probably more than you. It was on my top 20 of whatever year it came out, 2015. Not big on the Ben Stiller one, so I don't know. But, um, all right. Yeah, I, I think, honestly, for me, I think it's the title more than anything. Just the Meyerowitz stories parentheses new and selected i think it just pissed me off yeah it's pretty you know that new yorker short story whatever thing that they've been doing for a while that bomb box been doing for a while like is it a selection of is there a is there a meyerowitz franchise that i don't know about in cinema history no it's like the film structured like a series of short stories the first one focuses on adam sandler the second one's on ben stiller and they, they kind of even though it moves the story forward it's technically structured as a series of short um, stories. So there's no Meyerowitz cinematic universe that we should be anticipating. Not that I know of, but you never know. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Moving on. Uh, another a movie you mentioned, my number 15 is Brawl in Cell Block 99. Um, yeah. I just think it's so visceral and violent and thrilling. And uh, I, I love Bone Tomahawk a great deal. So I'm very excited for his next film, Dragged Across Concrete. That's coming out later this year. Uh, I can't wait to see how this guy keeps kind of classing up exploitation films and kind of give it, giving them more meat than most of these films in the genre ever allow for. So I, I'm really excited by him. Yeah, I wouldn't have this quite as high as Bone Tomahawk, which I think is a flat-out masterpiece. My one concern about his next movie, isn't that with Mel Gibson? Yeah, you know, I, I wish it's Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn, which they're not... I love Mel Gibson, um, so we'll see what he does there. But I, I have a feeling it's going to be a very uh, big, over-the-top movie. So we'll see how they do. Yeah, I'm not ready to welcome Mel back into my life, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't really... I, I, I Yeah, Heartbreak Ridge didn't work for me, but I, I don't know. Um, I, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge, yeah. And his act, he hasn't acted in anything in so long, I haven't really had a chance to think about it. But You didn't, you didn't check out Daddy's Home too. No, I. Oh yeah, I forgot. No, I did not see that. I didn't see. Uh, um, a cut. I didn't get the gringo. I didn't see get the gringo. Yeah, I didn't see any of that stuff. Uh, all right. So uh, number fourteen, another one on your list, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I agree that it's just bold, uh, very daring original sci fi, and it's about it's idea driven and it's character driven and it takes its time and allows for there to be a mood and it, it invites you to kind of you know, slow your heart rate down and kind of get absorbed in this world. And, you know, if any complaint I have about it, it's that I was totally fine with the Ryan Gosling movie I was getting until the Harrison Ford stuff showed up. So after Harrison Ford showed up, I, I was still interested and still invested, but I was way more excited by the first half stuff of the movie. But it, overall... But Harrison Ford's so great in it. He is. That's the other thing. I, I don't I don't disagree. Ford really brought it. He's trying. He, he did, He's not sleepwalking through this movie at all. And, uh, you know, but I just felt like the script, I guess, kind of wasn't as I, I was really interested in the dark kind of detective story aspect of it. And after that, it kind of became a more actiony sort of movie. And I, I really yeah. like the detective stuff. But I mean, fantastic film. It does totally capture the pacing of the first Blade Runner, too, which I loved. But go ahead. Yeah. And I, I'm very excited to see what he does with Dune. Uh, my number 13 is Mother, which I know we kind of split on. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> um uh for me, 
uh, that's that's how I felt about you saying personal shopper. Um, for me, it's it's a very audacious. Um, I'm, I'm I think I'm a bit more of a sucker for the auteur stuff than you are. And uh, for me, I I'm a I loved the boldness of trying to take. I'm gonna adapt the the Bible as the history of the world and tell it from the perspective of Mother Earth, and but it's all gonna take place in this one location, and um, yeah, and it's it's such strange, uh, visceral filmmaking, and that's Aronofsky obviously does very intense stuff generally, but I just loved the wild ride of it. I loved the conversations and arguments that I had and heard uh, in the weeks following the movie, and it kind of. I, you know, I watched Boonwell's The Extraordinary or the, the Exterminating Angels because of that one finally uh, gave me a reason to sit down with that one. And I just like it was a, a major part of the cinematic year for me. So I felt like I needed to include it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I hated I didn't hate Mother. Like, I think I think you dislike Personal Shopper quite a bit, right? Yeah, like I I really, really like struggled. And when people start talking about the movie, I, I still like even just explaining the log line, I kind of start rolling my eyes at it. So yeah, I don't. I definitely don't dislike Mother like that. Um, I think there's a lot, and I mean, I know a lot of people hated the last act. That's what turned many critics and and fans off. That was by far my favorite part of the movie. Agreed. Yeah, that's what convinced me it was a movie for me. Ultimately, I just thought it was. It's the that first hour plus is just so annoying. <laughs> it's just such a. It was just such a chore to watch, I guess. I mean, I like I liked the very beginning when it was kind of maybe a little like haunted housey when I guess before everyone started showing up. Like just Gen- I, Jennifer Lawrence, in my opinion, can really carry a movie. Um, and I like that earlier stuff with her. It was very atmospheric. The ending is just so balls to the walls crazy. It's hard not to admire. But yeah, there's that huge chunk where just hateful people and I just didn't enjoy it understandable i mean it's a you know certainly a divisive film in many ways and uh tons of people hated it they you know got razzy yeah. so i mean you know, honestly i'm glad it's on your list though it's it's a it's a movie that needs to be considered yeah all right number 12 i have a a, a very art house documentary called rat film um I, oh yeah i've been wanting to watch that yeah i caught up with it late in the year uh, super late not too long ago and i it's really amazing and uh it's political and kind of disgusting and it makes you uncomfortable and it's uh for those of you who don't know it is a uh, film about the baltimore rat infestation problem and it's comprised of um it uses like photos it uses um the news stuff it uses um like gopro footage from the point of view of rats uh it's uh on the street interviews with people there's recreations uh, it's all it's basically using every kind of format to tell the story and the story of the rats in the city and the spreading of them is in many ways symbolic of the spread of um, urban decay in Baltimore and uh, racism in Baltimore. And it becomes this very, very potent metaphor. And it's a very uh, formally inventive, uh, heartbreaking documentary. And it'll make you squeamish a little bit with the with the rats, but I, I really loved it. It's uh, something I thought about for weeks after I watched it. Where did you watch it? Because it's one I've been really meaning to watch. Uh, it was, uh, I think it's on Amazon. I think I rented it. I rented nice. it on one of the on-demand things, and I'm pretty sure it was Amazon. Cool. Um, after that, I would say, oh, number 11, The Beguiled, Sofia Coppola's film. Um, mm. I'm a big fan of this film, more so than I thought I would be. And Sofia Coppola is someone who I have personally gone up and down with the film to film. And it's only as I've gotten older that I've kind of looked at her 
body of work and I've actually realized that I'm actually a pretty big fan of a great deal of it and I love what she's done and The Beguiled is one of my favorite things that she's worked on so far. I loved the color. I loved the steaminess of it. Um, like the, I thought it was hysterical in many places. There's a, a scene of Nicole Kidman washing Colin Farrell's body and she just like, qu- her bottom lip's like quivering because she just like is touching his skin and it cracked me up. It's so kind of silly and uh, this kind of Victorian black comedy and I really just kind of ate it up and I've thought about it all year long. Yeah, that's one I need to revisit because I'm a huge Sofia Coppola fan. I really love her movies generally. And that one, I, I liked it, but it was kind of, my expectations were so high, I was a little disappointed. But I've heard, you're not the first person I've heard describe it as a really black comedy. And I didn't read it that way. So I'm really curious to go back and consider it under that lens. And maybe my appreciation for it will grow. My number 10, another horrifying black comedy in many ways, uh, Good Time, the Safdie Brothers film. Yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, yeah, I just I love the the pulse of it, the color, the neon, the the you and I both have spent some time in New York, so you get to see this like dark side of Queens that you don't normally get to see on film, like what it's like to like kind of walk around the real like neighborhoods where people live. You're outside of the touristy areas of the city, so it's kind of thrilling in that way. And Robert Pattinson is genuinely fantastic in the film. Uh, he yeah. He's fan, yeah. He the best I think he's been so far, and it's the first time I've really been convinced that like he's absolutely a movie star. Yeah, he's great. So is Benny Safdie, the co-director, as his brother. He gives a pretty brilliant performance. Yeah, some um, yeah, some people have questioned it because they they didn't know if it was appropriate that he was playing someone who has a you know h- handicap, uh, and they thought they should have gotten somebody who had a genuine handicap. And uh, but I thought that. Um, they their answers to that was really smart, and they talked about the way they planned on filming it, and they thought it would have been harder for them to elicit that kind of performance out of somebody with those disabilities, and it would have been uncomfortable for them to like shoot the way that they needed to. So I, I thought, you know, that was okay by me, and I think he does give a really genuinely moving performance. Yeah, that's why they call it acting. Shut up, everybody. Yeah. Uh, my number nine, also on your list, was Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Um, oh wow, it dropped. Um, uh, maybe. I feel like you had it much higher. No, I don't remember. Not really. It's always kind of been around like the back half, but okay. Um, I think this one's gonna age like fine wine, and I think after JJ's next one comes out, people will be more forgiving towards the Last Jedi, and it'll its reputation will only grow. I think the backlash that it received this year was silly. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious to me. It's it's almost like. Ryan Johnson predicted the backlash within the own within the story itself, you know? Yeah, like, the, f- um, the the film is so meta and so subversive about Star Wars that I guess it should yeah. be expected. Yeah, it's it's really did, Have you rewatched it or did you just see it the one time? No, I've seen it a, I saw it a few times in theaters. A few, like 3. I saw four. 3. Yeah, I saw it 3 times. Oh wow. Yeah, I saw it, I saw it a second time and it held up really well for me and the parts that I found a little slow like the uh the James Bond sequence, I appreciated a lot more actually the second time around. Yeah. Oh, you talking about the casino planet stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I the second time through, that really clicked for me. That that's really like it was a problem for me the first time, but thematically, I thought it was really interesting and important for Finn's character, and I thought it set up um, a lot of the thematic ideas that the film was getting at very, very well. And I thought it was important stuff to cover, but I didn't think pacing wise it quite worked. And I thought it was a strange sequence, but the second time through, I realized like 
all that aside, it's like five to six minutes long maximum in a two and a half hour movie. And, you know, there's so much great stuff around it that I'm not going to knock the movie for that small little bit. Yeah, I think my biggest complaint is still I think it has some pacing issues. Um, not that there's necessarily a lot I would want cut. So I don't really it's kind of abstract, I guess, the way but where my issues lay. But, yeah, it's the most, I think, emotionally satisfying Star Wars movie and definitely the most complex character wise of maybe any star wars movie ever i think yeah i I completely agree and i think that like i said i think people will appreciate it more the further they get away from it and they really can see what uh johnson was getting at it's a great script and i think the best thing i heard about the movie that i think sums it up is that the force awakens greatest asset was that it was its pacing and the star wars last jedi's worst aspect is its pacing I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Force Awakens, I still love, for anyone who's still curious, still absolutely love that movie so much. Absolutely. Um, Number eight, uh, a a film I had the exact same experience that you had with, which is a ghost story. Um, I think think it's also my number eight, so. Oh, yeah. So, my number eight, I had, uh, like you, you start the movie and you're kind of like trying to find your bearings. You're like, what kind of movie am I watching? This seems quite pretentious and very silly. And suddenly there's a sequence halfway through that, you know, I think is so arresting and so grabbing and so unique that I, you're like, you're like, oh, I've never seen anything like this before. I had no idea this is where the movie was going. And from that point on, I was really invested. But and in, in you know, you step away from it and it's such a deep, complicated, uh, heartbreaking look at time and loss and our place in the universe. And like the fact that this small indie movie could tackle such monstrously huge ideas was really exciting by the time the movie was over even though it was a roller coaster ride and not every scene was enjoyable to sit through yeah i can't believe what an epic that movie turned out to be i mean in the truest sense of the word it's epic yeah um not quite a very small film as my number seven it is the documentary the work uh did you ever see this i have not watched it no a very tough sit, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's a tough 90 minutes. It is men in Folsom Prison uh, volunteering for a, a rehab, intense um, psychotherapy session with uh, people from the outside coming in and going through their emotions and talking them out. And you see sequences of men who haven't cried once in their entire lives having to like be physically... Um, explain to them how they can cry and being talked through it and breaking down for the first time ever in their lives and it's just so physical and these are strong brutal men and they have like 10 guys holding them down because they're in they're so emotional they can't control their bodies and uh, it's just it's really powerful stuff it's dark stuff but you'll kind of leave feeling a euphoric feeling of like you know the way that pain can heal and that if you work at it you can even the Worst people can find forgiveness in themselves and find a kind of peace. And it's a, a beautiful film. I, I can't recommend it enough, even though it is a tough sit. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to hit me pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a couple guys, man. Like, even the people that you think are assholes at first um, confront being assholes by the end of the film, and uh, you're completely moved by it all. Um, number six is another movie that I know we've split on. It is The Last City, or The, the Last, The Lost City of Z. Uh, Lost, mm. The Lost City of Zed. 
Um, I think there's a lot of filmmakers out there who love to talk about the 70s and how they're striving to make films like they did in the 70s. Um, like, and it's it's almost always complete bullshit. Um, they're not, you know, they might have taken some broad idea, but they're not actually applying those rules and those uh, techniques in their everyday filmmaking. Like, I, I think of... Uh, the director of Kong Skull Island, like constantly referencing Apocalypse Now, and I'm just kind of like, give me a break, man! Like, just make your monster movie, enjoy it. Like, you don't need to kind of attach Apocalypse Now to this. Like, you, it, you know, I'm not looking for that here. And but for me, like Lost City of Z is a true uh, companion piece with those types of films from the '70s, like a big character-driven epic about um, obsession and about. Um, the, th- the things that we do that drive us throughout the course of our lives and that define who we are. Uh, it's about the role of the restricted role of women. It's about the progressive ideas of uh, how we view third world countries and discover them and manifest destiny and all these other things that I think are so interesting. And I, I think it's been called slow. And I don't, I actually think it's uh, pretty well paced. Uh, I've watched it multiple times now and I, I don't think it's as slow as I think it's initially gotten accused of. And I will admit, I know that your biggest problem is probably Charlie Hunnam, and I do wish... Yeah, Charlie Hunnam, that Charlie Hunnam problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do wish that maybe somebody with a little bit more gravitas had been cast, but I do think he's very good, and I think it's the best performance he's given in a very limited career of taking bad roles as a generic... Wait, you think he's better in this than Pacific Rim? Yeah, you know, I do. I know it's a controversial opinion, but I, I'm going to lay that down here. Um, well, you'll be happy to know, since I told you I ranked 60 movies... The Lost City of Z did make it in there, and it's sandwiched between a fantastic woman, woman, and the Power Rangers movie. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Yeah. Um, uh, Power Rangers is ahead of it. Oh, good. Um, yeah. That's in, uncalled for, but okay. Um, <laughs> I want. I really wanted you to know that. All right, number five. Um, one I'm surprised you didn't mention, but um, another tough sit: uh, the Florida Project. Um, mm, yeah, that just missed. Uh, Sean Baker is, I think, one of the most interesting young voice or not young, but whatever, newish voices new, out, yeah. new voices out there. And uh, you know, I I love Tangerine. I love Snowbird, the short he made uh, a couple years ago, and I really took to this. And uh, he made another film that I just saw on Filmstruck a, f- a few months ago called uh, uh, Takeout. So like, I think he's a director to watch. And this movie. Um, is just really beautiful and has beautiful performances and Willem Dafoe. I think I would have liked to see him win over Sam Rockwell, even though I love Sam Rockwell, but I just, the performance that Dafoe gives is so human and gentle and I loved it. So I, I can't recommend the Florida project enough um, for many, many for as much as for what it is as for much as for what it's not. I love what it doesn't do. Interesting. Yeah. I mean that and good time on your list. Really enjoyed both of those through no fault of their own. They're just, you know, I can only pick 20 movies. They're both just happen to be right outside of it. All right, yeah. Number four, Dunkirk, a movie I think I was just always bigger on than you. I Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like for me, this was the Christopher Nolan movie I've been waiting for. Um, and it was uh, structurally very interesting. Um, I think his one of his weakest uh, aspects as a writer and director is his dialogue. So the fact that this one had almost no dialogue was good by me. <laughs> um, yeah. Like there's, you know, no exposition. I like that it just kind of plummets you in there. And it is so much a, an on-screen experience, you know? Like I almost feel like I don't ever want to watch it at home anywhere. You know, it's like it feels like I, it's meant to be on a big screen. 
and meant to be heard as loud as possible. And I just, that experience of watching it in a theater, I found to be a very visceral, intellectually stimulating experience. Did you hear that, uh, I don't know, is this true, that, that when the Dunkirk screeners were going out, instead of a DVD, there was a note from Christopher Nolan telling them to go watch it in a theater? Well, I mean, that, you know, that's probably why he lost. <laughs> it's pretentious, but in the best way possible. You know, okay. I, I, I fully support that. Dunkirk, you do need to see in a theater. Agreed. Um, and for the record, it was my number 21. There's, a, I think it may rise quite a bit on a second viewing. Um, it did take me longer than I think maybe a lot of people to realize what the film was doing with its editing and pacing and time... Uh, the way it moved in time, forward and back in time, depending on the story it was telling. Yeah. My biggest issue was I. the film kind of lost the human element um, for the most part, uh, with a couple of exceptions. Um, yeah. Like the, the, the boat story uh, was my favorite, which I think it is for a lot of people. But, yeah, it's it's a fascinating movie. It's it's really worth watching. Yeah, and I'm excited to revisit it at some point. But I... Yeah. Um, like I really struggled with Interstellar and Dark Knight Rises. I think has aged very poorly. So I'm I was very excited to see Nolan doing something that really worked for me again. Um, yeah, you know how Dark Knight Rises is garbage in my opinion. Yeah, uh, and number three, Lady Bird. Um, just kind of a perfect movie. I mean, you had it high on your yep. list too at number three, I think. Yep, I and, think we have the same top three, Phil. Yeah, we do. Um, well, except my mine's for sure. My number two is uh, Get Out, but I understand why you would put it number one, and I actually, I, you know, I, that's who I was rooting for to win Best Picture, even though yeah. my number one is Phantom Thread. Um, right. And Phantom Thread, I, you know, I don't want to dive in too much because I could, I'll talk too much. But we uh, should probably have an, an entire episode devoted to PTA. Yeah, at some point we should definitely do that. I just uh, screened uh, There Will Be Blood Again for my birthday in a theater, and it was incredible. It's still uh, an incredible piece of work, and I could talk all day about his films. But, uh, it's the best movie of the 21st century, I think. I, right? I, I agree. The yep. uh, And as I'm sure as we have more conversations, hopefully people will find out, I am a Paul Thomas Anderson obsessive, and I was it was probably going to be my number one no matter what, but it turned out it was a masterpiece, and... Uh, I saw that one I saw three times in theaters and I just he continues to surprise me and delight me as a filmmaker because even though I love someone like Quentin Tarantino I feel like at this point when I go to see a Quentin Tarantino film and I know what to expect from that um, right and when I go to see his films I never leave the first viewing completely satisfied but it's it's great because uh, he makes me work for it and I really appreciate that I have to really wrestle with it and think about things and go see it again to confirm or to uh, see what worked or didn't and see if um, there's more under the surface at every single scene. And I find it constantly rewarding to revisit his films and how multi-layered they are. And Phantom Thread just continues in that tradition. And well, I think, you watch yeah. the trailer of Phantom Thread and it looks like kind of a stuffy costume drama and then you realize it's one of the funniest movies of the year. You know, it's just even when you think you know what you're getting from him, you get something completely different. Absolutely. And yeah, and it's it's a hard movie to sell and I can see why so many people don't think it sounds inherently interesting because it's about a dressmaker, but you know, as soon as you kind of tell them you like, you know, it doesn't really matter what he's doing, it matters that he wants to control women, that he's obsessed with his work, that he um has this I he has a man of his he is a man of routine and his routine is 
uh, involved with possessing these women and uh, defining how they're going to act and be viewed in his life. And suddenly here's a woman who's not going to be told what to do anymore. And uh, it's it's great, and I can't wait to revisit in the years to come. So that that's my top 20 and your top 20. And I, you know, I thought it was a pretty good year overall. I, there's always, you kind of have to dig for them, but there's always a lot of great films that come out every year. Uh, there's never a year where I feel like I can't make a top 20 list of films that I really, really kind of went crazy for in some way. But I, Agreed. Uh, but I did think 2017 was, you know, I think one thing that I would say for sure, I guess it's not entirely true because our lists were somewhat different, but I felt like everyone's lists were largely the same. Because there was like a consensus, I guess, what were the great films this year? There was, I felt like a consensus 30 or something. Yeah, but 30 is a lot. I mean, I have, I mean, my number four wasn't even in your top 20. You had Lost City of Z high up. That's not even in my top 30. Um, Bird Boys in my top 15. You've never seen, I mean, there's a lot. I had Okja, Brigsby Bear. There's, I mean, I think there, there are a few, like, I think Lady Bird, Phantom Third, and Get Out are unanimous top three in some order. I think are definitely three of the most critically acclaimed of the year and would be on most people's, at least one or two of them, on most film critics' top, t- top ten. Then you have stuff like Call Me By Your Name, which I'm kind of surprised neither of us had. But um, I was, I was pretty lukewarm movies, on the film, yeah. I think, I think in terms of you were lukewarm on Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, for, for multiple reasons, but yeah. I, yeah, I mostly liked it. Um, not top 20, but I, I was a fan. And yeah, it's especially now, like I'm, I'm just scanning my list to see, you know, there are a couple movies that didn't even have a theatrical release that I would put, or maybe just were on one screen in New York, you know, that like Super Dark Times is a movie that I have put at number 22. I don't know if that played anywhere in theaters. I think it was maybe on one screen in L.A. here for a week, and then it was gone. It's on Netflix Gerald's now. Game, yeah, it, it's great. I highly, highly recommend it. It just missed my top 20. That, that Dunkirk, In the Fade, Logan, those are all just outside the 20. Uh, Gerald's Game, a straight-to-Netflix horror movie. Yeah, where's It? I'm was, surprised I didn't hear It from you. It is, on, is number 27. Ah. Just ahead of Florida Project and Good Time, actually. All right. Um, well, I'm looking at a list of the box office receipts for the year, and you know, I see Star Wars was number one, uh, Beauty and the Beast was number two, Wonder Woman was number three. Uh, we, you know, I, we should probably mention. It's hard to go, you know, talk about the year without mentioning Wonder Woman and what a big effect that had on people. Um, I think we both have the same mind. Where like we think it's a solid B movie, probably. Uh, um, yeah, like a, a strong. A, a, it's a good movie. It's a good superhero movie. I appreciate how much it means um, in the larger context beyond the film itself, but just grading it purely as a film. Clearly the best DC Extended Universe movie they've made so far, but that's really not saying much at all. And, you know, I would put it, uh, you know, like uh, above the average of a Marvel film, basically. You know, it was it was perfectly enjoyable. I enjoyed it. I'm happy for the success. I think Gal Gadot is a... Uh, superstar in the making she's totally dynamic in that movie i loved watching her i went to go see justice league in theaters despite the awful reviews because i wanted more of her as wonder woman i thought she was she was that entertaining in the movie itself but i agree 
Um, yeah. So ha- happy for Wonder Woman and all women everywhere who really flipped out over that movie. It's I think it's a great thing. Yeah, you mentioned Spider-Man: Homecoming. There was also Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two and Thor: Ragnarok. I thought those other two were had their pleasures um, certainly and were very funny and entertaining. But I thought you know were just kind of standard Marvel movies in many many ways and uh, weren't big for me. But you know we're also we're big you know focus points throughout the year. Guardians Two was kind of a disappointment for me because I really enjoyed the first one and I'm whatever on the first one, so I never had that high of expectations. I, I just didn't find it that great. But Thor Ragnarok I enjoyed. I loved Kurt Russell in Guardians Two. I should say yeah. that. Yeah, I can watch his silver beard any day. So I want to ask you. I know uh, something uh, something that I know has annoyed you that I want to kind of bring up is one thing you will notice about neither of our top lists is that we did not mention Twin Peaks The Return or Wormwood or an episode of Nathan For You or anything like that. Um, I wonder, But we should certainly mention that one of the great cinematic experiences of the year was Twin Peaks. What an incredible experience that was, although I definitely do not think it is a movie, so I don't put it on that list. No, I don't care that Lynch wrote it and directed it as an 18-hour movie. It was a TV show. It was released as a TV show. It's the third season of a TV show. It's not even like a miniseries, you know? No, it is a a television show. It does not belong on a movie list. You want to make a TV list? Twin Peaks and Legion are, are one and two in some order for me from last year. You know, it's great. I'm not hating on it, but... It's it's just a pet peeve of mine. It's just like, ugh, I don't know. I know the line's blurring more and more with how much we're seeing released straight to TV in terms of Netflix original films and Amazon original films. and But I don't know, man. Movies are still movies and TV is still TV. It's just it's silly to me. All right. Um, Especially I- something like, I can, okay. On some level, I get the Twin Peaks thing, because if you know Lynch's intent, you can kind of cheat it a little bit. And everyone, I know a lot of people who just said Twin Peaks flat out, or they specifically mentioned episode eight of Twin Peaks, which we all know if we watch the show, which episode I'm talking about. Yeah. If you want to do yeah. that, fine. But then there are things like the the last episode of Nathan for you, which Nathan for you is brilliant. It's an absolutely brilliant television show. The, the season or the series finale of Nathan for you, it's not a movie. It's just not. It's just a different thing. Like it should be. If that's a if that's a movie, then the final episode of Lost is an is a movie because it's an hour and a half long. Yeah, it's just silly. I mean, the, should the USS Callister episode of Black Mirror be on people's top ten list because it's an it's seventy eight minutes long, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's a self contained story. Where I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just I just disagree with that. I agree that they were. Um, wonderful uh you know different versions of things whether it's a true crime documentary or whatever you know what lynch is doing with twin peaks is obviously beyond kind of comprehension but you know i will say that those like 19 weeks or whatever of twin peaks was thrilling week through week and even when it was frustrating if you know lynch you kind of know that he's doing that on purpose and you kind of have to sit back and enjoy that he's he's spending so much time fucking with you and there's a certain that's that's sort of hard, I think, to explain to people who aren't on the same wavelength because they're like, why would you want something to be stretched out to such an absurd length or such an uncomfortable length? Like, why is it fun for you to be messed with? And I think it's because 
people like you and me, we watch so much, uh, t- whether it's TV or movies or uh, consuming literature, whatever it is, we're always kind of like looking for stories. And I feel like whenever we find some someone who's willing to break the mold a little bit and challenge us and do something different, it's exciting. And for him to come back 25 years later with, you know, c- considering he also hasn't directed in almost a decade, Inland Empire was his last film. So to come back from such a long gap with, such an extended 18 hour, um, you know, masterwork, uh, you know, is so incredible and such a gift. And I can't wait to kind of return to that, you know, in future years. Um, but it, but it wasn't a movie. No, it was not a movie. Although I, I agree it was thrilling and I miss it. I miss those, the anticipation of Sunday and then talking about it all week until the next Sunday. Those were good times. So, I want to kind of just end this thing, uh, wrap things up with kind of asking you, what are you looking forward to this year? Uh, cinematically, what are you hoping is your favorite thing by the end of the year? Or is there a certain filmmaker who's doing something that you know you're like through the moon excited for? Well, you always are much more on top of this than I am. I, uh, I don't pay that much attention to what's coming out. Like, especially towards the end of the year, in terms of what I know is already on its way. Um, Probably by the time this is out for people to listen to, Isle of Dogs and Ready Player One will already be out. Um, Isle of Dogs, I not that I've soured on Wes Anderson, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan, but Grand Budapest Hotel was one of my least favorite of his. And Fantastic Mr. Fox is one of my favorites, so I'm really excited for Isle of Dogs. Ready Player One, all that backlash online is silly to me just it's just trying to be enjoyable just everybody chill out but i'm excited for that movie i'm always down to watch a new spielberg movie so those will be great in terms of what i've already seen annihilation is going to be in my top 10 at the end of the year i can't imagine it not making it um i would be remiss not to mention that movie because it's absolutely brilliant i've seen it twice now and i want to go a third time and then there you know as a horror fan there are some things like A Quiet Place is coming out soon, which has been getting great reviews, which is, you know, pleasantly surprising. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm especially looking forward to Hereditary, which seems to be in the mode of it follows the witch, get out, kind of like the horror film to see in the year. Um, I think that comes out in June or July. So I'm really excited for that. But you tell me, what what are the big, do the Coens have a movie coming out? Fincher, I know Soderbergh has Unsane, actually maybe this weekend as well. Yeah, but um all the You th- know all this shit better than me. Well, I you know, not I don't follow it like I used to, but I was, you know, there are a few titles that I am very particularly excited for. A lot of what you mentioned um I'm ready for and uh I'm trying to think, you know, I, I know A Quiet Place, I think I'm always excited for something that is leans on silence, you know, more than loud screaming and stuff so i i am very yeah. excited to see that next month um you know i'm i'm scrolling and i'm looking i'm trying to think uh, I, they did just release the trailer for the new um uh, i'm blanking on his name the guy who did it follows um right his new movie just can't had a trailer come out i'm excited for that i'm excited to see the irishman obviously very curious about what martin's uh, yes yeah that's that's a 150 million dollar netflix movie yeah um, I'm David very, Robert Mitchell, by the way, is the It Follows. Trailer. Of course, of course, yeah. Uh, and I'm a big. I really liked It Follows. Uh, you know, I didn't think it was perfect, but um, I I don't know that I'm that 
super excited for Deadpool 2, but I am curious if it will uh, continue the uh, the popularity of the first movie. I'm curious if it's just as big a hit. Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, I know there's that movie widows the steve mcqueen film that's slated for the fall yeah that's the end of the uh, year um yeah we got a sequel to sicario we'll see about that one um you know there oh i'd ha- i'd ha- i have to mention the blumhouse halloween film of course i mean i i don't know if it's going to be good yet or not but i'm very curious i'm a huge halloween franchise fan so i will be there for that for better or worse and i hope it's a pleasant surprise yeah and you know I, i'm obviously excited for isle of dogs i obviously th- you're in the minority with like the grand budapest hotel thing but i think you have a very good reason for not liking it even though i think what everybody else kind of responds to about it about it being so wes anderson style distilled into every single frame i i think you told me that's what you find very suffocating about it and, yeah. and uh i can definitely see that point it, it works for me but i think you know It'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed to see how much further he could push that, you know. So it does seem like the claymation is a good kind of refresher for him. I remember there was a lot of negative reviews for the Darjeeling Limited and people who felt like he disappeared up his own ass um, doing that film. I never kind of agreed with that, but a lot of people felt that way about Darjeeling. And then he did Fantastic Mr. Fox, and people were like, oh, his style works so much with the clay, the stop motion that. Yeah, it, it kind of it, yeah, it kind of like refreshes it and gives it a new, uh, a new shading that you hadn't had before. So I am very excited, and I also love dogs. So there's that. Yeah, well, the the my problem with Budapest briefly, what you said is accurate, but there are two things. One, I didn't feel the pathos of the movie. Like Rushmore, I I cared about the people. Tenenbaums, I cared about the people. Zisu, I cared. Fantastic Mr. Fox, I cared about the animals. Budapest was so much style to that suffocating degree where I didn't give a shit about anybody. And then, like, one of the best things SNL has done this decade is that Wes Anderson horror trailer parody where they kind of mash up your next and the strangers with Alec Baldwin. You've seen that, right? Um, And I think that is kind of, in its own way, a great criticism of Budapest because Budapest touches on some really dark material. You know, like people get murdered in that movie and it's, it's not, it's not easy, uh, content, but it's in this twee Wes Anderson style that just, it doesn't fit for me. It just seems so weird. Um, yeah, I, I have my problems with that movie and I've tried, I've, I've watched it more than once. I've tried. I just can't do it. Well, but yeah, I'm, I'm so, Isle of Dogs looks great. I'm so excited for that movie. Yeah, totally valid. So, all right. So I, I think that's a good you know, summary of the movies that we, we experienced in 2017 and the year. And so I'm, I was thinking next week we could kind of dive into the year in movies so far. Um, like the first quarter of the year. Cause I know that you especially have a top five that you're already very happy about. And there's art. Ar- yeah. yeah. And so I want to talk about, um, we'll talk about black Panther and the impact that's had, uh, since it's, you know, it's made a billion dollars already. We can talk a little bit about that. We can talk about, annihilation more in depth and uh what that's been like um and we can just kind of talk about uh, you know other things like even paddington 2 so um oh paddington 2 will be discussed trust yeah me. and and i want to dive into um some other things that uh you know still to be determined from there but i think that'd be a, a good way for us to start this show with 
Well, hopefully we can watch at, at least one. Of, both of us will be able to watch either Isle or or Ready Player One, so we'll have that to talk about as well. Like kind of a new release menu review or whatever. Yeah, that works for me. And so, and just so you know, for people listening, the idea of the show is that even though this episode is very solely movie focused, and next week will probably be very movie focused, we are going to talk about uh, some other things that are going on in the world. We're going to talk about um, books. We're going to talk about music. We're going to talk about television. We're going to talk about whatever's on our mind that week. We might talk about politics some weeks. Who knows? Uh, we can, I want to keep the forum open for anything that might come up. So uh, I'm excited to kind of go on this journey, and hopefully we can make this podcast a you know, many-episode endeavor. So to help people get a little more sense of our taste, give me your top five films of the decade so far, 2010 to now. Uh, 2010 to now, my, I know that the master is number one, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd really have to think about it. Um, you, you put me on the spot here. Um, there, there's a few titles that jumped to my mind. Um, you know, like the tree of life jumped to my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. social network jumped to my mind. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Under the Skin is on my mind. There's a number of them um, that I'd have to kind of... Holy Motors just popped in there. But, uh, yeah, I'm a really big fan of that movie. And um, Boyhood? Boyhood, yeah. Boyhood's, Boyhood's definitely up there. Uh, Phantom Thread, Get Out. Phantom Thread, Get Out. Um, and yeah, it's too many. There's there's a lot. I'm gonna Maybe I'll get back with you next week on that. I'll have an answer yeah. for you. So you listed a couple. I think, yeah, I... I wanted to spring this on you. I think I have five, but I'm, there will probably be a couple that I may change. But right now, I, I, in no order, I would say The Social Network, um, Inside Lewin Davis, The Witch, Phantom Thread, and Get Out, I think, nice. for me. Uh, Wolf- so three, three in the past two years. We're doing good. Cool. Yeah, Wolf of Wall Street is high for me as well. I would, yeah, I would, there there are a lot of good movies, man. Well, we'll maybe we'll do a decade list or something at some point. Yeah, we will. Um, all right, yeah. So next week we'll meet up. We'll talk about the year of movies so far. We'll talk about a couple other things. And since you sprung a question on me, I'm going to spring a question on you. And that's how we'll end things. And uh, I'll answer the question because I have something that's bothering me. So I want to ask you, what has been nagging at you? And, and anything you know, culturally this week? Is there anything that anyone's been doing that's been really kind of just getting up your crawl? Uh, I mean, politics in America right now is a constant, never-ending nightmare, so my first thought is always to go there, but I won't right now. Keep it a little light. Um, I will say that, you know, I see it mostly on Twitter, but the the mockery of shit on Twitter that is mainly here to entertain us like I, I mentioned it briefly the just the massive like backlash against Ready Player One I mean just the constant mockery of it I just like why I just don't get that mindset like you can be not interested that's fine but so many people are acting like it's offensive or an affront or just a cheap ploy and I, I, to me it just looks like something I mean I also read the book and it seems like just a movie that wants to be entertaining and not really much more than that and I don't get why something that's supposed to be so enjoyable and 
kind of just easily digestible is met with such hate, especially sight unseen. I just hate that, you know, like, um, what was that, uh, that HBO project that they announced with the Game of Thrones guys? Oh, the one about the, if the Civil War hadn't been won or was won by right. the South. Yeah, if the South had won the Civil War. And just the announcement brought so much ire that they had to retract it and write an apology. It's like, dude, you don't even... It's just an announcement. Nothing has happened yet. You know, so that that type of immediate backlash, that prejudgment, that rush to judgment really annoys me. And it's something I see a lot on Twitter because I'm, you know, very into following film Twitter and what's going on in pop culture news. So I would say that kind of nags at me a little bit. And I see it a lot on Black Mirror. Like, every time a new season of Black Mirror comes out, everyone mocks, you know, the premises of episodes like they're very simplistic ideas, which maybe they are, but all the people who are mocking it are the ones who are also addicted to social media, so (laughs) their lack of self-awareness is kind of hilarious, you know? So just stuff like that I find annoying, Okay, you know, whenever I see it. What's been annoying me has been much slighter than that. So um, what's been annoying me has been on my social media pages, I um, have liked Justin Timberlake at some point, and... He is blowing up my feed with uh, his Man of the Woods tour that he's about to go on. And I keep seeing him showing up to these events with, like, I don't know, white Jordans on and then, like, camo. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, man, you got to drop this this club and camo, like, Woods thing. Because it's such a sh- – <laughs> it's, it's such a str- – he's wearing, like, orange and, like, camo. And he looks like he's about to go hunting – but then he's like dancing, he's like break dancing, and I'm just like Justin, I'm you're confusing me, and um, I don't think people like it very much. This is just, uh, if I'm guessing, I don't think people are digging this iteration of Justin's career right now. Well, yeah, the album also isn't that great. Have you listened to it? Did you ever give it a spin? Yeah, yeah, I gave it a spin. Yeah, I there's probably four or five tracks on there that I like, but I think what he's doing is sort of an interesting idea that he's gonna take like country songs like there's songs on there like uh juice that if you listen to it there's guitars that are clearly supposed to be banjos that they've kind of given an electric sheen um or they've kind of given country songs this kind of club um framing and it's such a strain it just doesn't work some songs it's interesting that like oh instead of a like trumpet breakdown you know for a dance beat he's gonna have a harmonica breakdown so uh, they're doing interesting things that i think in theory uh sound you know very original and uh worth exploring but i think in execution it just comes off very strange that there's this club song about like fishing in the mountains you know it just doesn't work for the most part (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean i appreciate that he's I, I like it when artists, especially at that level of fame, just try something kind of wildly different. So Yeah. I mean, I, I, li- I like that, Justin Timberlake generally. I like Justin. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, knock him too hard. But let's just say, like, his clothes designer needs to, you know, rethink their plan. I, it's just it's an <laughs> ugly look, and I, I wish Justin would stop it. So I, I look forward to the next album and whatever persona he wants to try on next. I wish you had gone first before I denigrated all of cynical film nerds online. Well, my, no, you know, we, we're going to end on a light <laughs> note. So, um, yeah. we'll, well, well, maybe I would have changed it to like, you know, I don't know. I got nothing. All right. Well, you know, I didn't really have a good answer for your best of the decade list. So, you know, we're, we're even. Stew on it.
All right, yeah, I will. All right, so we'll. The check. Masters number one. That's all that matters. Yeah, Masters definitely number one. That's for sure. We, nothing's changing that. So we will uh, come back next week, and we're gonna get this podcast a, a moving, and we're gonna have more conversations. I look forward to it. Yeah. Have a good day, everybody. Right, see ya.